you missed the memo, we're in Genesis chapter 20. Uh, maybe some of you were asleep because of the biscuits and gravy. Just so you know, I do keep tabs on that kind of stuff. Well, we're in Genesis chapter 20 through 21 today. Uh, when I finished my freshman year uh, of college, I, I went to a community college at first, but I decided to make the transfer to Ole Miss, uh, the University of, of Southern Mississippi. I don't know if you all know much about Ole Miss, but there's a certain culture at Ole Miss, and you could easily call it uh, like frat culture, fraternity culture, that sort of thing. Uh, there's lots of partying. Uh, there's a very narrowly accepted way of living, like how to act and how to dress. So guys, like the, the typical way to dress is you wear short, khaki shorts. I mean, I'm talking like like five, four or five inches, right? Like, yeah, so short khaki shorts, leather loafers. So you guys know like Cole Haan, that kind of thing, leather loafers. Some kind of polo shirt or like a designer t-shirt. You guys know like Guy Harvey, uh, Southern Tide, that kind of stuff. Uh, and And don't forget... There's the swoopy hair. Uh, my brother-in-law calls it the SEC haircut. All right, so that's the style, that's the culture at, at Ole Miss, and I was all in on Ole Miss culture. I, I went, I went all in. I dressed the way everybody else dressed, talked like everybody else talked, and acted like everybody else acted, and I was miserable, absolutely miserable. I, I conformed to the culture in every way I could, and it just left me feeling empty. And really, la- last week, that's the same thing that, that happened. We saw in Lost Escape from Sodom how very dangerous conforming to culture can be, or, or, or conforming to corruption can be. It's, it's dangerous. So what happened for me is I became so miserable that that I had to transfer schools altogether. I decided that's what I needed to do. I couldn't stay and just find a new group of friends. I had to get out of there. So I went from Ole Miss to Southern Miss, University of Southern Mississippi. Not as, well, it's not like Ole Miss is great, but they're not as good as Ole Miss in, uh, in sports and things. But anyway, the difference I felt in that transfer was profound. Instead of polos and sh- uh, short khaki shorts, I wore uh, skinny jeans and, and soccer shorts. Instead of the SEC haircut, I decided it was too expensive to get my hair cut, so I just let my friend buzz my hair in his bathtub. Uh, and instead of leather loafers, I wore five-finger shoes. Have you guys ever seen the uh, five-finger shoes where your shoes are, the toes are each, a slot for each toe, and it looks like you're wearing bare feet. You know, that's the whole design. I love those things. I had about five pair of those things. Now I have plantar fasciitis, so. Uh, uh, and the difference for me, so I, I and, and when I went to Southern Miss, like, I was, I was myself, right? I wasn't conforming to anybody, but who I felt comfortable being. And, and, and the difference was more than just being able to dress and act different. I was now actually in a position to, to reach culture. So I was no longer in, out of danger and, and out of emptiness with conformity. I was now in a position to actually do something for the gospel. Instead of being conformed by culture, my new sense of identity helped me to reach culture. Not because I wore anything special, but simply through the act of leaving conformity to be who God made me to be. And that's how I believe Chapters 20 and 21 are functioning. 
In the previous chapter, we saw the danger of conforming, the cultural corruption. And, and, and listen, we learned about the necessity of persevering against culture. Culture is this mighty, pressured force that we must exert every energy we have in Christ to persevere against. That was a message last week. But Lot does what a lot of churches do, and he went too far instead of, instead of trying to live amongst another culture and, and live differently. He, he put himself in a bubble and shielded himself from culture and lived in complete isolation. He went too far. So in these chapters, the focus is no longer on Lot, but on the family of God. God is building this family. He starts with Abraham and Sarah, and He's building them their family. And now we have the long-awaited promised child, Isaac. Like Lot, they too are in a foreign culture. They're in the land of the Philistines. I don't know if you guys caught that. They're in the land of the Philistines this whole time. And as always with God's people, listen, as always with God's people, especially in Genesis, the focus is on how they are following through being a blessing to all nations. God's promise all the way back in, in chapter 12. How are they holding up with that? So through Lot, we learn how to persevere against culture, but now through the family of God, we learn what it lives, what it means to live among and reach culture, especially if that culture is strange to us, if it, if it looks very different from us. Because Moses is at great pain to show us the, gr- the growing family of God, he's also showing us what it means to interact with the nations around them. Yes, the promised son Isaac is born, but what does that mean for everybody else? That's what we find out. And so we come to the first uh, part of our, our passage today, and it's, it's Abraham's first encounter with Abimelech, and that's, that's all of chapter 20 there. And what does it mean? What does it teach us to live among and reach culture? First, don't be afraid of man. Don't be afraid of man. This whole story, this whole chapter, chapter 20, might sound familiar to you if you maybe read Genesis before, or if you were with us a few weeks ago, that's because this is almost identical to his time in Egypt. Do you guys remember that? God promises him and, and Sarah, you will become a great nation and a great family. And he goes to Egypt and he's like, uh, hey, here's my wife, take her, so don't kill me. And the same thing happens here. He lies about his wife, Sarah, and puts everybody at risk. And, and so what happens is, at both times, with, with Egypt and with here, Abraham deceives, deceives them about lying about his wife. And, and he allows, again, he allows this guy to take her. That's twice now in Abraham's life that he just like lets a guy just take his wife. I mean, one time is too many, right? And then two times? Jeez, what a, what a guy, right? What a stellar guy. Anyway, God, God visits Abimelech and, and does Abraham's job for him. You're a dead man. That's what any good husband would do, right? You take my wife, you're a dead man. Like, should be like a uh, Sylvester Stallone movie or something. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you're a dead man. 
you know. Anyway, yes, God does his job for him. And, and God says some really interesting things to uh, Abimelech. So, verse 6, God says, It was I who kept you from sinning against me. So, so God, uh, so even though he took Sarah, he didn't know that Sarah was Abraham's wife, and God kept him from, from sleeping with her. And, and really, like, how many times have we been kept from sinning simply by God not allowing us to do it or preventing us from doing it? I would venture to say more than we know. And then God tells him, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Now that's really interesting, isn't it? Because Abraham doesn't have a book like Isaiah or Jeremiah in he in the Bible he doesn't off he doesn't make any predictions right he doesn't prophesy like in our normal understanding and so mainly the the job of the prophets prediction was some of it but their main job was declaring the word of the Lord to the people right and that's what Abraham is supposed to be doing here Abraham is supposed to be offering Abimelech the truth in all of its unfiltered form. And instead, he's giving him his wife and lying to him. So in effect, Abraham is being a lousy husband. He's being a very bad neighbor because he brings all this trouble on these people. And he's a lousy covenant partner with God. He's not being faithful to God's covenant with him to be a blessing to all nations. In another way of saying this is he's not representing God well to the world, is he? That's what it means to bless all nations. It's not just this generic do good to them and all that kind of stuff. It's show God to them. Why? Why is he not doing this? Why is Abraham still such a bad partner? Well, he tells us, Abimelech calls him like, what are you doing? In verse 11, Abraham says, I did it. Because there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. See, Abraham kind of has it all wrong there. Not that he's wrong about there's no fear of God, because there likely wasn't. But he worried too much about their lack of fear of God rather than his own fear of God. It happened in just the last chapter. It literally takes a break to tell us when Lot is running for his life from Sodom, Abraham gets up early in the morning and goes and looks at everything and he sees what God has done. I mean, he sees the God who brought this immense destruction on these people. He saw what God can do with his own eyes, but Abraham's fear of man here was greater than his fear of God. And because that's true, Abraham, first of all, jeopardizes Isaac. I mean, he he jeopardizes the whole promised child because of this, but secondly, it also leads to the the near destruction of his neighbor. When our fear of man is greater than our fear of God, the same thing happens. Instead of showing our neighbor that the safety that comes from knowing God, we mirror the same fear that they have back to them. And we're just a bunch of people who are afraid of a bunch of different stuff. Maybe we're afraid by each other. 
And when there's enough fear, more harm comes. This is very much like what we saw with Lot. Lot was afraid of his culture too, and he was going to bring harm to his own daughters. But the finer point that I want to make here is how much we care to show the world what God is like. Like, do we, do we really care enough to show the world what God is like? A couple of weeks ago, I, draw, I drove by a farm, and the horses were all scrawny. And it like, it hit me that it's, it's really weird and out of place for a horse to be scrawny, right? Like cats can be skinny or fat. Most of them are fat. Uh, dogs can be skinny or fat. People can be skinny or fat. But not like horses. It's just, it's just weird. And it's, you know, when you instinctively, it's like that, no, you're supposed to, you're supposed to be different from this. And when the world sees the Christian or the church and we're filled by fear of man, they know instinctively it's not supposed to be like that. Right? They may not be able to put categories on it, but when they see us fearing man, they know that it's not supposed to be that like that. And then they don't want to have anything to do with it. The world can look and see if we are truly fearing God. So ask, ask God to grow you in the fear of His name. That's a great prayer. And listen, the more you grow in the fear of God, the more you, you grow in your sense of safety and confidence. Because growing in the fear of God doesn't mean you become more afraid. It means you grow more trusting and worshipful. Become acquainted with this God. Become acquainted with His power and His immensity and His holiness. A great way to grow in your fear of God is to grow intimately familiar with His mercy toward you. Psalm 130 tells us, With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. In other words, the level of your fear of God is proportional to your awareness of how much you've been forgiven by God. Isn't that something? Dwell on that and fight against being afraid of man. Fight against it. Secondly, don't miss God's grace. One consequence, uh, and in this passage, it's, it's the greatest consequence uh, of Abimelech taking Sarah as his wife, was that God had, had closed the wombs of all the women in his palace and in his, in his family. Uh, and so, obviously, this means that they were there for a long time. So, like, it's not like Abraham gives Sarah's wife and a week later they're like, oh no, we're having birth problems. Like, this would have been like a year or more that, that they're in this place and that she's somebody else's wife. Like, that's insane. Uh, and that they couldn't have babies. So, Abraham has a moment of redemption here, right? He acts as intercessor. Look at this. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and, and female slaves. So, so this, this chapter closes with, right, talking about wombs. So it's not a coincidence that the very next verse references a womb also. The womb of Sarah. The long-awaited child has come. The promise God made to Abraham all the way back in chapter 12 
that became more extravagant as time went on is finally happening. And Sarah conceived, verse 2, and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. I, so it's not a coincidence, right, that we have back-to-back refer- references to a womb. Right? Moses is connecting these two passages. But I also don't think it's a coincidence that God's promise happens here. It happens on the heels of Abimelech and while they're in the foreign lands. We are born, being forced to reckon with the birth of the promised son and what it means in relation to those things. These are important questions that we have to ask. Listen, the stars didn't align for Sarah and Abraham. I think we get this misconception in our minds that that when we follow God or become Christians, things just kind of get laid out for us. And it's like just one little stepping stone at a time, right? And 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 if things aren't going well, it's because we're being disobedient and we mess up. When that's not true at all. God promised them a child, and it's been two decades since that first promise. And that's a long time. And they both stumble through obedience, yes. But now they find themselves in a foreign land where they believe there is no fear of God. And you might feel that today, right? You might feel today that in our current culture, there's no fear of God. Welcome to Abraham and Sarah's shoes. What I mean to show is that not everything worked out peachy for them, and it didn't work out in the smoothest way possible. And and don't get me wrong, the the birth of Isaac is a profound act of grace, but the road to the birth of Isaac has been a bumpy one. And it's been curvy. The promised child comes away from promised land. And if this was ever a lesson for Israel later on, while in Egypt, they could trust God's grace to rescue them from the most powerful nation on the planet. While in the desert, they could trust God's grace to provide for them. While receiving God's law, they could trust God's grace to work in them. While as a nation, they could trust in God's grace to bring them a king and protect them. But that's not what happened the vast majority of the time, is it? Listen. Instead of trusting God's grace, they missed it because they were so focused on what they thought God wasn't doing. They were so focused on God, what God wasn't doing that they completely missed His work of grace that was right there in front of them. That would be like being mad that there's no Baskin-Robbins in Springfield and not eating Andes until you get it. What... 31 flavors, you got the best custard in the world right here, man. Like, are you crazy? The best thing for you is here now. If only you'll see it. Baskin Robbins. Instead, God's grace is meant to be our greatest source of joy amidst strange cultures. Yes, yes, we have an end in view. Yes, we can't wait until... Final justice comes, final redemption comes, heaven comes. We can't wait for all that. But we have our greatest source of joy now. 
Isaac's birth has been surrounded by laughter. This is how I want to show this to you. He's been surrounded by laughter. God promised Isaac. Abraham laughs because it's so ridiculous. He promises Isaac again later on. And Sarah laughs. It's so ridiculous. Even Isaac's name means laughter or son of laughter. And then in, in chapter or 21, verse 6, Sarah, after her son is born, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. So before it was an incredulous laughter, like that's ridiculous, but now this is a, this is a happy laughter. And isn't it, isn't it something that the first promised child of Scripture is a child of laughter? God is a laughing, a laughing God. He wants His people to have joyful laughter. God turned Abraham and Sarah's unbelief on its head and created laughter for them. Church, don't miss God's grace when you're not in a place you don't want to be or when you don't have what you think you should. Celebrate God's ongoing work of grace in your life. Celebrate that you have a God who is at work in you at all times. To kill a pride that you could never kill on your own and to grow humility in you that you could never muster on your own. Celebrate that God is working in you to make you holy and and to sanctify you. And you know what it means when you become more holy? You become more joyful. Congratulations! Celebrate that Jesus is a Savior for you in season and out of season. That Jesus is a Savior for you when you screw up with your Abimelechs. And He's a Savior for you when you are celebrating like the birth of Isaac. That's fire to gasoline living in and reaching culture. Celebrating God's grace. Third, keep the Gospel central. Uh, All told, it's kind of weird how short the uh, birth of Isaac is. It's like only seven verses. You're like, boom, 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 boom. And And then, yeah, it builds it up, but then it's over as quickly as it had begun. In fact, uh, this whole majority of this chapter takes up Hagar. Hagar's portion is, is double uh, that it is with Isaac. And there's a lot of important stuff that's happening here. And, and one important connection that I want us to see is one of laughter. Sarah exclaims, everyone will laugh over me. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Abraham throws a feast and Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian whom she had born to Abraham doing what? Laughing. We're not told explicitly. Presumably, this is a mocking laughter. In either case, Sarah doesn't like it. So she asked Abraham to cast them out. And, and this is a familiar scene too. This already happened before. When Sarah, you know, we think Abraham is a nutso husband. Sarah's kind of a nutso wife too because she told Abraham, hey, go sleep with somebody else to get a baby. And, and when that, when Hagar does have a baby, she's like, make her leave. Okay, so we got some problems going on in this family. But they, they did this back in chapter 16, except now 
Now there's a different level of meaning behind her departure. In chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah acted very poorly toward Hagar. But here, it's different because God tells Abraham in verse 12, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but Ishmael is unnamed through this whole chapter. His name doesn't come up. He, he's just called the, the boy or the son of the slave woman. What's happening here is that there's a distinction being made. right? Moses is writing, and he's writing to show a distinction that's happening between Isaac and Ishmael. Moses is trying to show us it is not the unnamed son of the slave woman, but the promised child Isaac, son of the wife. Listen, Moses is really trying to be obvious here. Okay, uh, in parenting Willa, I've forgotten how obvious I have to be with her. So things I've heard my whole life and that I just take for granted, she's never heard before in her whole life. So like for me, it's like, okay, I know it's good to give thanks. But like she, she has no category for giving thanks. So I have to, to teach her and make it explicit. We need to be thankful and this is why we need to be thankful. I mean, it's ridiculous when you watch a show like Dora the Explorer and they pause and they look at the screen, you know, they look at you. And they're like, do you see Swiper the Fox? And he's like literally right there dancing on the screen. You're like, come on, Dora, like turn your head and you'll see him. He's right there. It's obvious. It's forced observation. And it's good for kids, right? But that's what Moses is doing. He's asking, do you see, hello, the promised child? And it is in this way that there's not only a distinction between the children, but a distinction among the way of salvation. Paul will say later in Galatians 4, Hagar and Sarah are two covenants. Hagar is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay. Now we're I'm trying to I'm working through this material, but listen. Just as God's promised child needed to remain unthreatened by the other offspring, so God's gospel must be unpolluted by other competitors. Do you see the point that Moses is trying to make? It, Isaac needs to remain unthreatened from the competition of his older brother so also God's gospel must remain unthreatened by other competitors for the way of salvation. That's the message that's being told here in Genesis chapter 21. A fundamental distinction is being made right here between the only way of salvation and every other way man could conceive. Because we humans are really good with coming up of our own ways of salvation. Enough success, enough money, a good enough family, a comfortable enough place to live. If we just pray enough, believe all the right things, do the right things, live a good life. We are always trying to substitute the one way of salvation with all of our human way, human made ways of saving ourselves. And 
And here is why this is very good for Ishmael and Hagar. You see, it's a very good thing. Instead of sending her out on her own, they send her out with provisions. And just when she thinks it's all over, God visits her yet again. What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. So, so I love that, by the way. She, he specifically references the boy, right? So it's showing God's love for Ishmael. And he says, up! Same language that's used when the angels are rescuing Lot from Sodom. Up! Okay? Lift the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Listen, there are so many parallels here. But whereas God visits Hagar in chapter 16, and she's already by a spring of water, here He makes one for her. God blesses her and provides for her, but only when the distinction of the promise has been made. In other words, and this is from a literary point of view, Hagar is blessed when the Gospel is set apart and kept central through Isaac. We must keep the Gospel central for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved other than Jesus Christ. Jesus, fully God and fully man. Jesus, who lived a sinless life and obeyed perfectly for us. Jesus, who died in our place. Jesus, who forgives us of sin by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. Keep the Gospel central. Don't be afraid of man. Don't miss God's grace. Keep the Gospel central. And finally, very quickly, show them God's goodness. There's lots of coincidences, or not so coincidences, in this chapter. And, And just as God provides Hagar with a well of water, the very next scene, Abraham uh, disputes with Abimelech over what? A well of water, right? Uh, And so we come full circle with Abimelech. Okay, These episodes with Abimelech are like a sandwich, right? You have one episode featuring this slice of bread, and the next episode featuring this slice of bread, and you have Isaac and Hagar in between. So this whole thing is, is meant to be a unit to teach us something. Something about being tied to the birth of Isaac. And one difference that we see since the birth of Isaac is Abraham's change. He changes from deception, doesn't he, to honesty. Abimelech recognizes, so so he recognizes the work of God in Abraham's life, doesn't he? Verse 22, God is with you in all that you do. Ironically, for this is where Abraham saw no fear of God in this place. The fear of God began to develop. So Abimelech says, because of that, hey, hey, buddy, let's uh, let's be friends forever. All right. Abraham says, I swear. Be friends. Immediately after this, though, Abraham believes Abimelech has already reneged on his promise. Like, hey, buddy, I thought you said we were going to be friends, but that's my well over there. You can't just take my well of water. 
You might have also noticed that that name Beersheba pops up uh, over and over again in this passage, which serves to connect these stories. But but uh, Beersheba means well of the oath, which is exactly what happens. We kind of have this scene like, all right, when, when you're trying to, you know, um, if you want, if you need to repair friendship with me, and buy me a pizza, and we'll devour that thing together. In this day, like he's like, here's here's some lambs, buddy. And I'm like, all right, got seven new lambs. In fact, Abimelech doesn't even know what they're for. He's like, what are these seven new lambs? I don't know if you guys remember in chapter 15, but when they make a covenant, they take an animal, and they cut it in half, and they walk between the pieces. Symbolizing, if I don't keep up my end of the deal, may I become like this animal. I wish... We did stuff like that with like car salesmen, or like salesmen in general. Like, all right, buddy, I'll buy this from you, but first we gotta make a covenant. Come on. In other words, what's happening is is Abraham is putting his life on the line. He's putting his integrity on the line here. Instead of being deceptive with Abimelech, he's being honest with him. Abraham is no longer hiding himself from Abimelech, but opening himself up to him. And that's important because it's not just Abraham's reputation that's on the line here, it's God's. Listen, if we are to live among and reach culture, our lives need to be on display for unbelievers. That means living in integrity. Being the same person in private, in secret, at our homes, in our rooms, wherever, as we are out in public, around friends. That we're honoring Christ in secret as well as in the open. Because He's the Lord of the secret and He's the Lord of the open. He's the Lord of our private lives and of our public lives. That's what it means to live with integrity. So, it's not good when your neighbor knows you're a Christian and they see you yelling at your spouse or your kids losing your temper with like pets. And it's not good if they know you're a Christian and you're closed off and unapproachable. It's good when you have a life of integrity. You're open and honest and honest about your Lord. Uh, Abraham planted a tree. Well, first of all, he's, he's being a gardener like Adam. Adam was a gardener in the Garden of Eden. We're to see Abraham in the role of, of Adam. But he plants this big flowering tree and in, in the same way, in the same time, he calls on the name of the Lord. And uh, I just would like to make the observation that his devotion was as obvious as a tree in the middle of a desert, essentially. And so should ours. Show them God's goodness. Listen, it, this sermon is not about how to be like a good person or how to get laws passed or how, how to make a culture a better place. This is about following our Christ and showing our Christ to the world. And, and our example is Christ who didn't fear man. And he, Christ feared God to the uttermost, but, but Christ didn't fear man because He knew the truth was powerful enough to change them. Jesus' trust was in the truth. Our soil is Christ. 
who lavishes grace on us daily and works in us a work of, of glory. Our Savior is Christ who rescued us from wrath completely, rescues us from sin daily. Our goodness is Christ who withholds nothing from us, but gives us everything for our good from an infinitely wise hand. Church, let us flee to Christ for strength and for joy that we would live among and reach culture for His great glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth. Your truth is light. Your truth is life. Your truth is joy. Because You are a God of light and life and truth and joy. And You came that our eyes might be opened and that men might have the light. We are a people of the light because we believe in You and follow You. And we pray that You would make us into a people who will live among and reach culture in the fear of Your name, exulting in Your grace, keeping Your Gospel central, and showing Your goodness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.